You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Amrita Narayanan, who's the author of Women's Sexuality in Modern India in a Rapture of Distress. Hi, Amrita. Hi, Manjula. So, Amrita, I mean, a lot of people, you've been speaking to a lot of uh, people, I guess, because the subject of this book is so arresting. I mean, I'm, you know, I, after you told me that you've done a lot of podcasts, I went online and I saw that a whole range of people, uh, you know, had spoken to you about it and very different sorts of uh, mm-hmm. uh, people as well so you know mm-hmm. that's interesting that different kinds of women specifically are you know finding a lot to uh, uh, ponder about in the book so, so let's start with a simple question why did you write this you know what did you well, grow up mm, mm, um, well as you know i'm a psychologist a uh, clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst and uh, an in-depth look at the psychological elements in women's sexuality in India um, has not really been done recently. There's only one other work that exists on the subject, and that is Sudhir Kakar's book, Intimate Relations, from around 1990 or so. Um, So, I thought it was time to have a fresh look at this uh, for two reasons. First, that I wanted to approach it as a woman psychoanalyst. Uh, He's, of course, a man. And uh, the second 10, so 30 years after the previous work on the subject, uh, 20 years after the previous work on the subject, and by the time I'm publishing it, it's more than 30 years. So the idea is to follow up and to think a little more and see how our thinking has evolved, but also see how a woman looking at the same set of subjects might think and look a little differently. Mm-hmm. You know, while I was reading it, I mean, some some of the things that the women said, uh, You actually, what I have to say is that when I was, re- you know, the kind of experiences of other women made me think that perhaps, I don't know whether this is common, but perhaps I'm like extremely straight-laced or either that or, uh, you know, I don't know. Because uh, there's one bit where this woman who's married and who has children and has this extramarital affair and, you know, which is common. But um, her lover, the man she's been having this long-term affair with, says such things and she, you know, like the Gujarati woman. I, and you yes. listed, listed that and I was thinking, God, how, how is she getting pleasure from this? And obviously people get yeah. pleasure from different things. <laughs> but my reaction to it was really side-eye. So, you know, when you're talking to uh, be your you know, people who come to you, how do you stop yourself, you know, from experiencing the same thing? You know, experiencing this sort of... Uh, uh, Recoil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that. Um, well, first of all, I think if you spend more time with someone, uh, you quickly get beyond that. If, if at all I had recoil, um, I always found that if I spent enough time with the person, I started to understand where they were coming from. Um, and that's something I think that any analyst would yes. agree that, that this is the way to move beyond uh, 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 an immediate reaction. Mm. But just what you said alone tells us a little bit about one of the problems with sexuality, which Mm -hmm. is that we don't really understand sexual tastes that are different from us. And that that the possibility that a wide variety of tastes exist um, is something that I think we don't think enough about because we don't have enough data for it. We often share with confidants who are like-minded or who at least would share things that we could receive. Yes. And if you want to talk about the particular one that you mentioned, the one in which the woman enjoys um, violent and aggressive uh, behavior from a very beloved partner. um, I think that's one that can be controversial because so many of us like to think about sexuality as um, something that we associate with love and tenderness. Mm. Um, But Increasingly, I think we have to make room for the possibility that BDSM, which is how I would categorize uh, her practice, mm-hmm. uh, although she probably wouldn't describe it that way. She's a very traditional woman. She uh, may not even know about that 
uh, terminology. But I think mm-hmm. we need to accept that since uh, we have histories that are laden with aggression that at some point and for some people aggression could become could have a erotic charge to it could be attractive in some respect now clearly that's not everybody um yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. but that it, that it could be that it could be and that we have to leave i think one of my points of that was that we have to take women's a woman's word for it that if she's saying she enjoys it um that perhaps we can't really step in and say hey but it seems a bit of an aggressive thing to enjoy i mean no one says that to people about their love of boxing matches for example so yeah that's true yeah. that's true that's another thing i can't understand you know so you know and this particular woman was also surprising because uh, because of that incident where you mentioned you know where she says she fainted because she just happened to touch another man you know at yes. some point. yes wasn't that fascinating I thought that was so interesting. So on one hand, she has a long-term affair, decades of an affair in which she's having this very aggressive sex, including lots of name-calling, etc. And on the other hand, she goes out with her family and her husband to a restaurant, a man touches her by accident and she faints and she gives the response that I guess it happened because we come from a conservative culture in which women are not supposed to be touched by outside men. but so on one hand uh we could say this is really hypocritical on one hand she's having an affair on the other hand she's um fainting when a guy touches her but we could think about this in the language of consent that the when the man who uh touched her by accident uh she wasn't giving permission to him um and as long as she's outside of the domain of her consent that is with her lover she's a pretty conservative woman mm-hmm. um so she in the course of our conversation she also complained of another uh, office uh, i guess someone in her office a colleague uh, calling her up late at night a male colleague and she felt so harassed by it she couldn't stand up to him and it's hard to believe that this is the same person who's also uh, having these very um, secretive and aggressive sexual experiences but the theorize this um is that she belongs in two worlds one world which is extremely conservative and which judges her uh, for any public behavior involving men mm. and another world which is extremely private and completely secret mm. uh, in which she consents with this one man to do all sorts of things mm. um and that she has a foot in each world and she's fully invested in each of these worlds uh, i think that level of investment in the conservative world of tradition that's what creates something like the fainting um but it's also perhaps it was arousing for her all the more reason to faint in public <laughs> if it's something exciting that is yet taboo mm. um she she went to a psychiatrist i'm a psychologist by the way not a psychiatrist she went to a psychiatrist and he said it's a hysterical episode yes yes and i've theorized hysteria in my book in a number of ways because it's ru- somewhat routine for women to come into my clinic uh with a male psychiatrist telling them that they have hysteria and offering some medicine for the hysteria and i uh then they come in to see me and in the three cases that i've described in the book it's always about something sexual that seems out of place somehow that seems incongruous and difficult to understand which then earns this label hysteria so the psychiatrist thought that this was a excessive reaction to what had happened which is just a guy brushing against her um but there's something in the way that she's experiencing it that feels true to some the way in which her culture uh, construes it construes mm. male touch mm. so the painting away maybe can say something about the excessive rules that she is subject to and the level of compliance that she feels she has to perform mm. which mm. is so deep that it's unconscious because if you talk to her she wouldn't say that yeah yeah I'll faint and all it wasn't planned out it actually was a physical response Mm-hmm. which also takes me you know the thing about about male psychiatrists you know constantly labeling uh, uh people women as hysterics and and you you mentioned that it's a, it's a bit anachronistic as well because i don't think yeah. you know it's really something like freud uh, freud absolutely it is freudian it's freudian yeah. so let's yeah. talk about that why do they feel that they can do this so easily <laughs> Um well this is a bit outside the 
purview of my book, but it sounds like what happens in in the of your podcast. Um, but I don't know, and I can't speak to what where they are coming from, except a kind of bewilderment, and so therefore falling back on these rather antiquated points of view. But if I want to be kind to them also, then I'll say that some women who like the ones, the one you mentioned and a couple of others in the book who live in joint families that will not tolerate anything outside of a very, very choreographed performance of femininity. Mm. For those women where the rules upon them are so excessive, it may be that their sexuality uh, leaks out in these kind of hysterical episodes. So in another case example that I'd given in the book, uh, the woman Agni, um, she has these very aggressive screaming matches where she imagines her husband is having an affair. Yes, yes. And again, the doctor, psychiatrist meets her. He sees her screaming. Uh, he says, this is hysteria. He gives her a very strong antipsychotic. Um, she doesn't really need the antipsychotic medicine. What she needed was a forum to talk about her desires. Mm. So there's no way she could say to her husband what she ended up articulating after some years of speaking, mm. which is that she would like to have an affair. Mm. And um, the only way she could... Uh, put this together was by projecting it onto him and getting really enraged. Now, the level of rage matched, I think, her feeling of being trapped and imprisoned. Mm. Um, but she couldn't, of course, uh, come uh, at it by saying that I feel so trapped in the marriage because of me. But that's where she got eventually, that um, to think more about her own desires and fantasies, at least, which even those she couldn't allow herself because that was... Um, that was earning her an, an internal criticism that she had this feeling about of being spied on internally. Mm-hmm. That uh, even if she was to let her mind wander away from her marriage even a little bit, that she would feel uh, so guilty and so uh, internally punished. So that's the sort of thing. Uh, you know, if we if we think about hysteria in Freud's time, Freud always said that. Um, it's a set of symptoms that are trying to express something sexual that can't be expressed in language. Mm. Or to put it in another way, hysteria is a, a demonstration of what it looks like to have a gap between the life you desire and the life you're allowed. Mm. And that performance, the performance of hysteria, narrates the strange and excessive feeling of having desires that are disallowed. So not everybody, of course, uh, has to experience their disallowed desires in such a vehement manner. Um, Mm. But some women do, and it kind of makes sense that the pattern of women who do um, have a a lot of restrictions in their familial uh, setting. Mm. Mm. And you also speak about, you know, the internal criticism. And, uh, and, you know, you give a lot of space to the mother-daughter relationship, right? So let's talk about that. You know, and, and the ways in which mothers and daughters kind of maybe shape each other. Yeah, on. yeah, absolutely. So this, by the way, is worldwide. All the empirical studies on sexuality worldwide tell us that the mother-daughter relationship is one of the primary means by which sexuality is regulated for the daughter. Um Similarly, if we look at the empirical studies of psychology, uh, sexuality in India, uh, we see the same pattern. What I found was that when mothers feel it's very important to pass on uh, strict sexuality, which you can also think of as anachronistic sexuality, Mm -hmm. um, as a value to their daughters, when they uh, really highlight that and they show that it's very important for them um, and that their daughters love and the mother's love for the daughter as dependent on the daughter conforming uh, to this kind of sexually restricted performance. In those cases, it turns out to be a lot harder for the daughters because what happens when they feel more free, when they experience what is more authentic uh, in their sexuality, there's this inner disturbance that I will lose my mother's love. And that actually seems to be a mediating factor that's more important than social values because social values is pretty distant we can say you know yeah who cares what society thinks this is happening in my bedroom um but there's a, there, there is 
Um, both the studies and my own experience in and out of the clinic suggests that if the young woman feels like there's an older woman who disapproves of her behavior, of her sexual behavior, that serves as a kind of an inhibitory factor to her own exploration, even to her fantasies, even to what she can imagine for herself. On the other hand, um, if uh, there's a, a mother who is more permissive or even silent, but not uh, emphasizing restrictiveness, then the daughter has space to imagine. And those daughters seem to have a, a better time, a more free time, shall we say, uh, in exploring their sexuality um, than the daughters of mothers who have made it a priority to pass down this restrictiveness. But why does that happen? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Why, why does it happen? Why does it happen? <laughs> you... Well, I mean, we can think of this in, in, I think, at least two ways. The first is that everybody's identity is in some way molded by the rewards and punishments that they receive emotionally speaking from those around them. So in one way or another, all of us are shaped in our childhoods to behave a certain way because we'll get more love if we behave that way, more love, more attention, and less criticism, uh, less punishments. That's true of all of us. Uh, but under patriarchy, mothers are given this special role of uh, restricting um, their daughters' uh, sexuality. It's uh, tied up with the sense of uh, social uh, pride or izzat, as you'd call it, in, the, in yes. North India. But even in, in South India, it's still a very, very important uh, feature. And so that the mother's value as a mother within the family is partly judged by everybody on her daughter's gender performance. If the daughter, Adakkamarka, would say in, in Tamil, like she, she's sort of uh, neatly turned out and dressed uh, in a very modest fashion, uh, if she's kind of um, performing in a hierarchical way and so forth. Of the various kinds of values that gender performance um, asks for in these settings, uh, the uh, performing sexual restrictiveness is one of the most important ones. So on one level, uh, I think I, I don't blame mothers for doing this because in their minds, their sense of security internally, their sense of their identity is dependent on their daughter's behavior. So they groom their daughter's behavior accordingly. The other piece, which is much more difficult to understand and maybe even sometimes to forgive, is that um, I think what I understood from my interviews is that there's envy between women of different generations that when there's a situation where a daughter has so much more freedom than the mother could even imagine that both the mother and the daughter feel uncomfortable about this mm. and now every mother-daughter relationship is different and I like to think that every mother and daughter sort this out in different ways mm. um, but when the mother's envy gets enacted through further restrictions on the daughter by kind of constantly reminding her not to be excited in any way, mm -hmm. uh, constantly grooming her performance, then it becomes harder for daughters to find sexual expression that makes them happy, even at a distance from the mothers, <laughs> because this is internalized. Um, there's also, uh, you know, many of the women I spoke to felt a kind of guilt uh, that they were sexually happy and their mothers never were. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of intergenerational passing on of sorrow that many women spoke about. And it, it relates actually a little bit to the title of my book, subtitle of my book, mm -hmm. In a Rapture of Distress. Yes. Um, yes. Sometimes when women give up freedom, they feel closer to their mother. So if, if they gave up sexual freedom, then they could align themselves with their mother and feel a sense of in mental, psychological affection and closeness that in their minds was greater than the affection and closeness they would get if they were you know, exploring their sexuality. Hmm. It all sounds so, uh, uh, I mean, it is repressive, but, you know, but... Uh, I guess this is everyday reality for a lot of us. But well, I mean, I want to remind you that the in an example I gave that a woman feels closer to her mother instead of to her sexual partner because she's following her mother's sexual values. Many of those women didn't feel bad about it at all. 
You may feel bad about it. I may feel bad about it. But it's one of the things that was very striking for me. Uh, many of them don't experience it as a repression necessarily. They experience it as choice. Choice to stay close to mama. Mm-hmm. And and there's one case where you said mm, this woman said that she wouldn't even masturbate because she's scared her mother was in her head. Her mother was watching her, <laughs> right? Um, there's actually. Mm, I think she said more something like that. Something like that, exactly. Yeah. She said, "I don't know why, but I think my mother wouldn't like it." Yes. But if you read yes. into it, if you read into it in a more analytical way, you can say that she's. imagining herself as her mother's sexual object so that if she imagined somebody else her mother wouldn't like it <laughs> okay there's another example of a grandmother who says that her daughter wouldn't like it and daughter-in-law yes. wouldn't like it yes so which yeah. you, which made me think that you know uh, one always thought that the older uh, people became the more free they became but while i was reading that lay, uh, person's um, you know what she had to say and i was thinking gosh she's in her 60s and she's still thinking about what others will think about her yeah tell me how you think that that would just go away i don't know i thought you'd outgrow it or something <laughs> you know and as you grow older <laughs> well, you get she felt she had outgrown she felt she had outgrown she said i remember she said and i thought this was really quite remarkable she said that just to say it felt like such a big deal to her and she said I'll never get I'm too old to ever get to enacting it but just to tell you feels like a huge liberation for me and she did she said all sorts of things she made a whole she made lists and lists of people that she wanted to have sex with um <laughs> and and she was so she shared that and she shared those lists with me now she didn't go out and do it um but but for her it was to come a long way and I think it is quite nice I don't want to get into this very positivist idea where we say these ones are liberated and those ones are repressed but rather one of the points of my book was to to take women's griefs including this woman she was sad also that she had she had this long list that she'd never gone through but we can we can if we think about it in the in the context of her life we can um give a sweet sad smile maybe that she she has a lot of desire and she's able to say these desires and to think about them and um they make her happy when she's imagining them mm-hmm. and she was speaking about having about these their fantasies now and those made her quite happy so i think that's something nice to to think about so that even if we are encountering a woman who is generationally different who comes from what might look to us like repressive surroundings well in that case we can ask her about her fantasies instead of her reality mm. and that gives us some avenue to still have a uh, common ground as it were one of her things that she said was that she loves having sex with powerful men in her imagination mm. and she gives <laughs> a long list of yeah but so what so what um, so what no, no, yeah yes exactly you begin the book with that you know in the introduction you're talking about this uh, interaction with this swedish woman uh, and her colleagues and yeah. uh, and, the, and the kind of um, and i've i've encountered it too where where people who are you know like westerners westerners you know who kind mm-hmm. of like want to pigeonhole you as somebody from a culture which is very repressive and you know doesn't allow you any freedom or that so uh, you know and it's irritating also but it's also funny <laughs> you know uh, because you know it's not like that so um, mm. So let's talk about that you know and how yeah. you 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 dealt with it and it's i think it's something that more and more as uh, you know like people even online if you're just commenting on something somebody will say oh you will get raped in your country or some silly thing like that which kind of takes you you get taken aback by it so you know let's talk about that you know and this impression of indian women some of us might be you know put upon but many of us are not you know to, So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um so in that incident that I talk about in my book um this woman is a is a stranger and I think that's usually the setting in which this happens and she yes. all of a sudden started expressing to me her uh, sympathies uh, <laughs> that how difficult it must be for me living in India. Um and she she so she was observing me with my daughters and 
she, she, I think she sort of perceived some level of freedom that did not gel with her view or imagination, shall we say, of Indian women, even though we were in India uh, <laughs> at this at this moment. Um, I do, I do think that India serves as a repository for the collective imagination uh, at this time in history, a repository of projections, so that yes. rather than thinking about um, how oppression is different in different countries, mm. and uh, of course it's different in different people, <laughs> uh, rather than uh, reflecting on that, was an uncomfortable thought actually that every country has its own style of oppression. Uh, and I do think that's true. I think uh, uh, cultures have their own style of oppressing women. Yes. But um, unfortunately, I think that uh, this very explicit violence has become associated with India and that it serves as a convenient form of projection to sympathize yes. with Indian women. Mm. Um, and if you think about sympathy and how it works, when you're, when you're sympathizing with someone as she was with me, mm. um, it it gives the impression to the person that you're being sweet and nice to them. <laughs> but what's happening in that particular exchange is that something is getting discharged, which is yes. discomfort about difference mm. and about the reality that oppression, women's sexual oppression, it is a cultural universal. Mm. Its form and shape are different. Yes. So when you express sympathy saying must be difficult for your women, um, in a way it says that your women are the one who are oppressed and we are uh, we are liberated. And yes. it sets up a kind of a drama, if you will. That's <laughs> a repeating it's a it's a repeating drama which which in which the uh, star cast are the poor oppressed women, but equally starring are the rescuers, uh, the yes. ones who are highly liberated and who have the power to you know to think about these matters. And I found that to be I found it to be on one hand, of course, socially very annoying. But what's very worrying is that it's mirrored in the research. So if we look at the psychological research, like the ones that I, um, the one enormous and influential piece of research I comment on, which is Baumeister and Twench, they mm. make the statement that Western culture has defeated sexual suppression. But countries that have not had a sexual revolution, uh, women are very much more oppressed. Every nation has the idea that they have more or less got it right with regard to sexuality. And that's something, of course, that that national narcissism, it's inevitable. Um, but what becomes problematic is when the research questions around sexuality are also approached um, like this. So as I was saying, um, the researchers Baumeister and Twenge, uh, who have this very influential work, which is uh, cross-cultural com comparison of sexuality. And they say that um, compared to non-sexual revolution countries, sexual revolution countries, women endorse um, interest in sex much more on a questionnaire and to interviewers. And based on this metric, they say that the sexual revolution countries have defeated sexual uh, suppression. Now, this is it's quite problematic, um, as you can imagine. Um, and I, I wish that uh, we could form questions around sexuality uh, with something other than the better off, worse off question in mind, um, but rather thinking more about difference um, and also about sexual value systems. Yes. So one of the one of the observations that I had um, is that in in America, where these researchers are based, um, you know, absolute openness with um, your sexual value system, uh, democracy, complete democracy, um, and the right to uh, show sexual identity as an important part of your overall identity. These kinds of values are quite important. They may not be so important to somebody in another culture. I mean, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Even within India, of course, there are so many Indias that the title of my book is it's almost excessive on purpose. Mm. Um, but how do we take into account differences? And when we're talking about uh, even within country differences and seeing what a range there are, as you yourself yes. noted, yeah, yes. some of the uh, elements of the book probably feel so right on and then others feel very far away from your reality. Yes. And yet it's all there. Yes. Uh, so that's something, but we can only, we can only take that approach of, of holding all the difference, holding the vast array of difference. We can only take that approach if we're not looking for better off and worse off, uh, repressed and free. If we're not in those binaries, 
yeah. then we have a chance to really, really see what an array there is. And that's where I was going with this thought. Hmm. And and there's one one girl, one woman who says, uh, uh, you know, she's Muslim and she said she went to America and she was aghast because of uh, um, how sexualized women are. You know, and, yeah. and that's, that really is a way that a lot of people think, no? I mean, uh, yeah. so, which is, I think it's incomprehensible to uh, Americans. They, uh, you know, I, yeah. I'm sure that many of them can't understand that point of view at all. And probably many of them can. Because um, this woman's comment, if, I, if, I, if we're thinking about the same woman, she wasn't Muslim, by the way. She was Gujarati, however. Um, she said, poor American ladies, they have to be compulsory sexy at all times. And and there is really some... <laughs> I think there's something to that, that that I think probably many American and European women could agree to. That um, there's a... Because of the sexual revolution, um, there's a certain definition of what sexy is that is very, very rigid. Yes. Uh, as rigid as the restrictiveness uh, yes. that is present in some other cultures, there's a very um, sort of hegemonic, if you will, definition yes. of what is sexy and, and the kind of pressure to keep accommodating to that. Um, yes. And we can really see that even in the way that we... Um, Think about mental health. For example, I remember that in the uh, questionnaire for depression, when you're trying to screen someone for depression, I remember one of my professors saying, well, for example, you can ask if the woman is still putting her makeup on, you know, or she's not, and that would be a sign of being depressed. And I just thought, wow, that, you know, that every time we have, it's just, you know, that that's a way. And every culture's sexual values get imbued into all parts of their thinking, not just into how they think about the bedroom. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, it's not something that, that's not something that gets discussed. Uh, because the, because again, the gaze is so sympathetic towards uh, Middle Eastern or Indian countries mm. where, uh, uh, you know, pity yes. is given for women's sexuality. And um, that obscures in some ways uh, some of the sexual politics that are happening in post-sexual revolution countries where women complain quite a bit about other kinds of complaints and other forms of restrictiveness. And I, I do think that restrictiveness changes form. Mm. When you have had a sexual revolution. This kind of pitying gaze, and I, you've pointed it out in your book as well, about how, you know, post the uh, uh, Jyoti Singh case, 2013. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's really, I mean, now, <laughs> women are viewed as the, I don't know what, we're like very poor creatures who cannot be at all, have any agency or anything in the general view, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, the very tragic part of, of tragic side effect, I think, of yes, the 2012 yeah. protests was that it gave a full uh, channel for the expression of pity towards India. And that, again, obscures any capacity to see difference. I think one of the places in which that comes through really nicely is, um, I don't know if you recall it, but I talk about um, my meeting with two American midwives They've come mm, yes, from California yes. to India yeah. um, because because they they are working at a hospital <laughs> where they're thirty percent of their uh, hospital uh, patients are Indian and they work in the OBGYN department and they have this huge number of Indian women coming in with pregnancies that are self-performed insemination that they've collected their husband's sperm and inseminated themselves. And they've chosen this as a way of becoming mothers rather than having sex with their husband. Oh. And uh, these midwives were ex extremely concerned and they felt you know, so, so anxious and unhappy for these women. And they had you know, created a research project and got some grant money to travel to Gujarat and see how they can improve relations with these women and their husbands. And, you know, that's fine and all. Um, but I thought, well, what else can we think about in this situation? What else could be going on? And I thought it was rather ingenious that these yeah. women who didn't want to have sex with their husband, maybe they're queer, maybe they don't like their husbands, but they're already in these marriages that involve so many other people, that involves community structures and, of course, its own system of rewards and punishments. They want to have a child, but they don't want to have sex with their husbands. Can that not also be okay? Yeah. And one of the ideas I suggested uh, to them is that if you're inseminating yourself in this way, 
you also have the possibility for a fantasy lover or husband and you know i'd like to give the example of parvati oh. in this case um yeah. who uh, whose uh, conception of ganesha is autonomous in a sense yes. there's no yes. shiva around yeah. and and i do think i'd like to leave the possibility open for these windows of difference rather than saying no it must happen in such and such way by sex with the husband um and that is a liberation because i i wonder whether that is so liberated if we can imagine that somebody inseminated themselves with the sperm of the man they married to but with the fantasy of a man they like to be with him you know i mean like when i read the bit, this bit i actually laughed because first of all i found their reaction quite comic you know because i didn't i don't know i didn't find it so outrageous that these women were doing this you know yeah um, yeah it it well, was Yeah, it was. Yeah. It I think they were anxious. Yeah, they were anxious. I know it came yeah. out as a almost like a comic uh, skit. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they even had a name for it. They call it scrooping. Scrooping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I underlined it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it was interesting that they found it so terribly wrong, yeah. and so obviously wrong. Yeah. But why do uh, they find it wrong? Because they were not having actual penetrative sex. Is that why? Yes. So they thought the women That's were being. That's why. That's why. And I think that is a value system that penetrative sex is somehow healthier and better, and what you should be doing with your husband. God, but if anyway you want have want to have children, how does it matter? <laughs> how does it matter it how you get pregnant? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, the fact that you're saying that. uh shows where you're coming from but they clearly weren't weren't thinking about it that way yeah well anyway so you know let's also look at um, the other concept which i found so interesting the whole the, the dropati um what what did you call it you call it the solution the dropati solution which is not my it's not my term that that term belongs to the anthropologist sarah pinto oh yes yes Yes, who comes up with this um, this phrase to describe uh, a woman's uh, decision to be with more than one man? Um, but the reason I bring it up and the context in which I bring it up is that it offers a mythological sanction for a more unusual configuration, which I have in my observation that if a woman can find a mythological sanction. Um, then it seems to be comforting it seems to provide some community for a choice that's not the most conventional choice mm-hmm. and this woman that sarah pinter interviews um has two men in her life and um she wants to know why that's so unacceptable if dropadi also did it Mm-hmm. And you know what? What I found interesting about your book was that when I was reading about these women, and you know, this you know, kind of uh, reading what they had to say about their own sexuality or their experiences, you know, at some points it kind of made me think, oh, you know, and then I. It, it kind of made me reflect on my own attitudes as well, especially in this. Uh, in, in this, it happened throughout the book while I was reading it. You know, there were many points where I thought, "Oh my goodness, is that is it? Is my reaction to this because of me being a certain way?" You know, and especially with this Draupadi thing, like you know, this this person is thinking that it's like freedom, and I've always thought of Draupadi as this poor woman, <laughs> you know, who had to endure. the four other men because she had to be dutiful within that yeah. family setup and you know yeah. i do, it seems to me very much like abuse even if everybody you know glorifies her as a powerful woman you know i mean i don't know sex with people but your know, pity your your yeah. pity tells us about what your sexual values are yeah, yeah this constantly happened with me when i was reading your book so you know you want to talk about this uh, uh you know it, it's kind of revealing of one's own attitudes right yeah mm. 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 so mm-hmm. like when you were writing the book did you like, i don't know did you think of that you know as well you know I, i think i think i see this this what you encountered where you where you see one woman giving dropadi as a justification for having choice whereas you see dropadi as somebody oppressed yeah um I, i'd say i'd say that the 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 thing is to get beyond the optics mm. 
um, and that in the same situation, in the Draupadi situation, that one woman might feel terribly oppressed and the other, another woman might feel terribly powerful that five men are yeah. uh, at her feet. Another woman might say, I don't care how many they are, but I find it oppressive. Um, <laughs> but in the context of the, um, in the context in which I brought this up, which is uh, a mythological justification, yes. um, it gave women a, uh, gave this woman a, a routing um, yeah. to having more than one partner. Mm-hmm. And it, if we look at the Indian scriptures, the pr- presence of Draupadi, uh, Wendy Donegar talks about this as well, says that allows us to think that well, more than five makes you a whore, but up to five. <laughs> It's somehow all right. And let us not forget, <laughs> let's not forget the presence of the older woman there, the mother figure, yeah. um, who, who is the one who actually legislates this, who, yes. who decides yes. that Draupadi should be shared with uh, all of her sons and not um, belong only to one. So it is one woman deciding that another woman should be the property, if you will, of, of all the men. And so there's a number of ways of thinking about this. Yes. If she's a sex slave, then it's her mother-in-law who made her the sex slave. Yeah. Um, but I also want us to be able to think that somebody who is sold into sex slavery, as you put it, <laughs> could also emerge with a narrative of having a, a very rich erotic life. Yes. Um, because that's precisely the kind of adaptation um, that we see women um, go through. And we can't really call it oppression anymore, even though it might have yes. started like that. Yeah. What matters is the experience, mm. what you have made of it in your imagination and with your sexual experiences. Mm. So. Yeah. So like the, the, uh, a rejection of, uh, of being a victim, right? That's yes, also- exactly. Exactly. And that's how I start the book also that um, how are we going to get beyond this victim narrative? Uh, if, if it's all so clear and so black and white, then, you know, all the older women are victims and all the younger women uh, have more opportunity. And we already know that's not the case. We already know that uh, there's a lot of diversity within it at the same age group. But I think one thing that women have in common is that nobody wants to be a victim. Yes. Uh, when it comes to their circumstances, sexual or otherwise. Uh, and so if we can find a way in which to hold all the stories without saying some are victims and some are liberated. Mm-hmm. That that's I think one of the central arguments of my book. And to do that, we can't be too excited about victimhood. We can't be in a rapture of distress. Yes, because if we're in a rapture of distress, then the people who are who are distressed are going to have our attention. Yes, and if we're giving someone attention for being in distress, then in a way we we can uh, conceive of disincentivizing them coming out of their distress into power, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of distress would be power. Yes. When this constant, like, you know, uh, chest beating about, I mean, like, that's a very unsympathetic way to say it, but well, you know, say that we, all, uh, uh, we are always, you know, put upon by men. You know, I see that a lot. Yeah, many, yeah. Many, you know, I mean, you just so, captured what I'd written about in my epigraph, right? You said chest yeah. beating. And in the epigraph to my book, I have Rukmini Bayanayar saying, men thump their chests, women beat their uh, breasts. Yeah, yeah. Which is a real quirk because uh, if we think about um, beating the breast as analogous to chest thumping, then there's a victory in yeah. in beating your breast. <laughs> as if mourning could also be victorious. And that's yeah. why I want us to think think a little bit more when we see when we see grief and breast beating and and looking for eros within that. Yeah, yeah, because that itself can be so um, seductive, right? I mean, if you're constantly languishing in that, there's this sweet pleasure of it. Yes, yes, yes. And that sweet pleasure could become sort of a culturally sanctioned form of experiencing the erotic. Yeah. The pain becomes eroticized, uh, you know, which is fine if that's what you like, but not as as a pressure to eroticize pain, which which can happen if we give a lot of attention to the uh, victimhood. Mm-hmm. And also you, you've touched upon this uh, tendency, I don't know, I, again, I don't want to say, you know, uh, give this sort of blanket thing, but among women, you know, even within unhappy or dissatisfied marriages, to stay within it, because it's 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 how you're brought up, right? It's like mm, the heroine mold, you know, you, you endure it, you 
keep yeah, at it. Bear it with fortitude. Bear it with fortitude, you know. And and some people never get out of it, right? Others, like, because again, what I found very interesting when you said that, you know, we identify ourselves so much with the group that the, the, the you know, and the family that uh, yeah. what's good for the family unit is good, uh, is what you should stick with. So let's talk about that, which, um, which is very common, you know. Hmm. About the idea of the group. No, the idea of enduring and and uh, continuing yeah. to suffer in some. Yes. Well, we have, have a system of rewards. We have a system of social rewards, psychosocial rewards. Yeah. Um, for women, particularly, <laughs> but maybe also for men, mm-hmm. um, for withstanding adversity. We celebrate yes. this idea of a strong woman as one who with, who stays despite adversity and perseveres in the face of adversity. Yes. I think, um, you know, of course, there's a reason for that. And there's, I guess, some, some uh, praise that we're giving for women who withstand adversity. Uh, but it doesn't really make room for pleasure. Uh, it, in fact, it narrativizes the uh, withstanding adversity as one of the greatest forms of pleasure that a woman can have. Yes. As if the fortitude was uh, the highest form of pleasure. And by giving that such a huge social currency, mm-hmm. um, what is taken away? What are you trading in exchange for your uh, for the claps that you're getting uh, mm-hmm. as a woman of substance who bears everything with fortitude? What are you losing even as you get that title? And I think one of the answers could be um, your desires and your sexual desires um, that by by force have to uh, leak out of this fortitude. Um, and it also implies that it's weak to desire, mm-hmm. that it's strong to bear adversity and to, to stand in for the family and uh, to be the center and stronghold, as you mm-hmm. will, uh, mm-hmm. as, you, as you wish, uh, but not to desire, which is somehow regarded as, as being weak. And I think that it implies that desiring is selfish and that a desiring woman is a selfish woman. It's not an imago that we associate with men. So yes. I think that's incredibly problematic. Yeah. 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 Which is, you know, I thought of that even when, when that woman, you know, is watching her husband having all these affairs and, her, you know, or women with yes. agency. Yeah. Is, and then she says, oh, he comes back to me in the end. What's yes. The <laughs> so you could satisfy yourself uh, based on your um, static but powerful position uh, without sexual agency, but with the agency of being this powerful person who's the person who withstands all adversity. And that becomes a, has a silencing effect. I'm not saying it's entirely bad, but it has a silencing effect in that um, other desires don't get to be articulated at all. Instead, uh, all the pleasure is taken from being strong. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I could keep talking to you because this is really an interesting book. Um, But I guess, you know, because you've spoken to so many people, uh, I'm wondering, you know, if you're getting the same sort of questions all the time or are there there any variations or what? (laughs) I mean, every podcast is different, of course. Um, but but the the I think the questions that come from um, people who are um, you know sharing this work with um, an everyday but intelligent readership, um, like your your podcast listeners, uh, it's of course a little bit different than questions that come from a more academic um, audience or from a, a psychoanalytic audience who tend to to look at things in a slightly different way. So um, that's always refreshing. But it's always nice to kind of see how the person who's reading the book it, it always either dovetails or resonates or doesn't with their set of values and what they know. You know, all of us are so limited in what we are exposed to as well. So that's always refreshing. Yeah, but I found this book a bit startling because I found myself becoming judgmental at at times. I mean, I caught myself, you know. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and so it's giving me an idea of myself as, I don't know, a bit fuddy-duddy in some ways or a little, you know, judgmental is the word that comes to me. So, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I need to work well, Other on- people's sex lives always rub us the wrong way, I would say. <laughs> um, but is there a particular part that you found, other than what you mentioned earlier, is there a particular section that you found yourself being particularly judgmental about? No, it was just the, the ones that I mentioned. The others, well, I could understand, yeah. you know, many of yeah. the things. 
you know, uh, it was just like yeah. The- so, th- <laughs> so you can read the book not to know others, but to know your own judgments. That's, yeah. a, that's a great way of reading a book. I think that's a great reason to read. I got a bit startled actually by that because I didn't think of myself in that light. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was more free and easy. <laughs> Really not. (laughs) I think that was a growth for me also when I was uh, writing this book to also slowly. I think it took me some time to get to a position of trying to look at these lives as if they were equal instead of deciding in advance what's better and what's worse. But it really does make a difference, as you probably also notice. It makes a difference if we uh, look at each life as if it's also as important as another. Yeah. And as an analyst, you'll have to do that, right? Because you can't, yeah, I mean, people who come to you, uh, come to you for, I don't know, not for judgment, (laughs) you know? Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting, it was interesting and it's useful, I think, to turn that non-judgment upon the the group at large, because these are not just my patients that I'm talking about, they're other people who are out in the world. And it's nice to think of the, I think it's nice to think of the potential of holding, holding human sexual diversity um, in some kind of a container that makes a lot of room for difference mm-hmm. instead of holding it in a way that's more like a religion that some people are better off, some people are worse off. And yeah. we've got to get the, all the worse off people to the better off position, yeah. which predetermines the whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, I liked how you've used, uh, you know, Hindu myth and uh, to, to kind of give insights because it's... Yeah. We we don't see that much, now. I mean, we are like so exposed to Western ways of. Uh, I mean, at least in the books that reach us, you know, uh, Western ways of observing. So conceptualizing. Uh, yeah, conceptualizing. And this thing about you know Ganpati going around his mother and Skanda taking that thing. I found that so fantastic because it's so true, <laughs> you know. And even when you mention you know the scrooping and kind of looking at it through Parvati creating her own son, you know. Yeah, yeah. To think of it that way, yeah. It's not a popular way of thinking about it, for but, sure. <laughs> but it makes sense, it, though. Yeah. yeah. Makes and, and then, you know, why can't this be a way of uh, legitimizing? Yes. Uh, another way of, of, of getting pregnant with a, an, an imagination of its own that defies the conventional morality. Yeah. So great. Yeah. So I could keep like, you know, the many things in the book that I'd like to talk about, but you know, so. <laughs> well, thanks. It's always, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with somebody who's close in terms of the culture of the book as well. So that's always nice. So for the listeners, go out and get Women's Sexuality and Modern India in a Rapture of Distress by Amrita Narayanan. It's not an easy read. I mean, don't expect to just flip through it, but uh, it will. It's very insightful and it gives you a lot of ideas, which is which is great and sort of makes you think about yourself. Like I said, quite a lot. So, <laughs> so thank you so much, Amrita, for talking to me. Most welcome. It's a pleasure. Okay. Bye. Bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Hold up. 